This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. Hi, I'm Pat Hazel, and my special guest today on Creativity and Captivity is a man who made his way up from the mailroom of the William Morris Agency and along the way accompanied Elvis to his appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. He eventually made his way to the very top of the pyramid as one of the most respected talent managers and comedy empresarios in the business. He represented the likes of Andy Kaufman, Carl Reiner, and Jerry Seinfeld. Despite all of those credits, I call him Georgie because he's my friend and he has served as an archangel that has been a champion of mine for such a very long time. Here is Georgie Shapiro. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hey, that was a beautiful introduction. We- Say that again, please. No. I will. I would say that any day of the week for you, George. You gave me accolades. So I you, appreciate that. You deserve it because you really, what's interesting is there's no comedian I know that hasn't had some interface in your satellite. And it wasn't even people that you represented. You were always so supportive of all the stand-ups and all the sitcom stars uh, that everybody looks at you. Really, you're the most decent guy in show business, I think. Well, I don't know if I like that title. I like the title of uh, <laughs> loving com- comedians, loving comedy. I worship the comedy gods, and uh, and it's just uh, my calling. So I, I just have great appreciation. And you, you Pat Hazel, are, uh, are one of my favorites. And I don't know uh, the Wonderbread years. Are you still doing this play that you wrote and you performed in, and you were brilliant in <laughs> and hilarious, and you went back to your childhood Thank and you, you captured. You know, I love that you have that immature gene about you because I, I share, I'm proud of my immature gene. Yeah. But that, that was a brilliant masterpiece. Thank you, George. And yes, when gathering of audiences allowed, I am doing that piece. That's fabulous. I started a new one, which I'm going to send to you and Amy. Amy is your producing partner on some of your new documentaries. She just did two brilliant documentaries with me. Right. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about those both separately. Let's talk about the Bronx USA because that was based on the all of the guys you grew up at in the Bronx. And the Bronx has a, a lot of significance to you. So let's just talk about that crew and how you uh, how you all grew up there in the Bronx. We grew up at uh, PS80 in the Bronx. And we, we had, did reunions every year, starting when we were about 70. We met when we were like five years old. We graduated when 14. Then most of us went to Dewey Clinton High School, where Gary Marshall went, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, who used to be Ralphie Lifshitz. And uh, it was an uh, incredible closeness. So we started celebrating our birthdays. Uh, we, we did documentary specials for HBO and PBS. The most recent special we did was called The Bronx Boys at 85 Staying Alive. And that led into the documentary that Amy produced. And she put it together so beautifully with Danny Gold. And also 
the, the one prior to that, which was called, if you're not in the obit, eat breakfast, which Carl Reiner hosted at the age of, you know, he left, left us at the age of 98. I know. These brilliant young people like Mel Brooks, all over their 90s, Kirk Douglas, uh, he was 100 at the time. Wow. He, he, yeah, Dick, Dick Van Dyke, right? Um, yeah. Norman yeah, Lear. Uh, and Mel Brooks, Norman Lear, Mel Brooks. So you saw it? I did. In fact, I was in Los Angeles when you had your screening prior to the HBO. And I got to tell you, that was a, such an extraordinary reunion to see all of those guys together, getting their photograph. And it was the, the Mount Rushmore of comedy. Um, yeah, that was so emotional. And Amy put that premiere together at the at the Goldwyn Theater. The, uh, that, that's, that's the Oscar Award Theater. And she did a new, packed the place with a thousand people. And it was one of the greatest nights of my life. It, and, uh, it was so amazing. And and just the story, uh, all of the folks in that were 90 and over, and they were still had a young at heart attitude about things that they did, whether it was the arts or exercise. I still run. I work out. I pump iron. My body is unbelievable for someone my age, which is old. <laughs> That's a, a single word, old. Yes. But you are still one of the youngest guys in terms of your maturity and your behavior, whenever I'm around you, people think you're like a eight-year-old, right? You always got a lot of energy. and You know, that there's a connection in the brain, and it's a blessing to me that I have part of my brain is frozen at eight years old, nine years old, <laughs> ten years old. It's just part of my being. and uh, I know, but it's what, what makes you so – you're so light and, and easy and, to and, be and my, around. Okay. What's that? You, you're so, because you have that attitude, you're always so much fun to be around. You're always, you're game to do whatever comes up. I mean, anytime I've had a lunch with you or been on the road doing some kind of concert or something. In fact, there's a routine I'd love you to tell people about. Like when you would go to Vegas for a, a, a weekend for Jerry Seinfeld, uh, you know, shows, there's a whole routine that goes with that. Can you kind of give us a sense of what that? Well, we 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 get there on uh, on usually he does a show on Friday night and Saturday night. So Friday night we 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 have he has his first show and it's just a joy because you're surrounded by laughter. I enjoy it more than he does because I I'm right in the audience hearing the laughs. And sometimes you know as you comedians are thinking of the next thing you want to say, so you don't you don't embrace it. But the fact that you're doing this show. Uh, lifts my heart. Uh, Pat Hazel, he, he designed a book for me that I love. It's called, as long as it's funny, I talked about writing a book. Oh my God, I can't believe it. That's fantastic. I have a copy of it's. It's yeah. the five words. You said the five words to comedy success are as long as it's funny. That was advice that you gave to Andy Kaufman, I believe. Am I right? Yes. As, uh, well, yeah, we did that. I did this movie with Andy Kaufman. It was called Man on the Moon. That Jim Carrey portrayed Andy Kaufman, and he was beyond brilliant. He became Andy Kaufman. Four months, there was no Jim Carrey. He was in character for four months, and it was the most incredible thing in my life. And I had even had, had a role in the movie. I played Mr. Besserman, who fired Andy. That's why I was talking about funny. He said, Andy, if the people are walking out in the middle of Iraq, that's a bad thing. It's show business. Show business. Without the business, there's no show. And I threw that out, and uh, I got a compliment on my little acting role by Ron Howard, who was there. The 
maybe the best compliment of my life. And in that same movie, you were portrayed by Danny DeVito, who played the character George Shapiro. Am I right? Yes. Danny DeVito, I'm short, but Danny, I'm a head taller than, so Danny DeVito, he called me because I was pitching uh, the Andy Kaufman bio movie to Warner Brothers, and he knew I was talking to him. So Danny DeVito called me and said, look, I have Milos Forman, who won two Academy Awards, one flew over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus, and he, he, he saw Andy's act, and he, he'd like to do the movie. Can we, have, can we do it together with Shapiro West Productions and Jersey Films, which was his company? I said, with, with Milos Forman, I said, yes, I mean, that, that, that'll give it a green light. And then he said, and George, I'll, I'm going to play you. So I said, Danny, I, I hesitated. Brad Pitt was in my movie. <laughs> play me, he would have been great. But, but I said, you have that warmth, that, that New Jersey, New York, the East Coast warmth, and you're funny. So I said, okay, but you have to break the news to Brad Pitt. <laughs> well, it was a wonderful movie as a biopic, and The Man on the Moon comes from an REM song that they had written about Andy, so anybody who hasn't seen that movie, it's really worth a watch, but so many of the things that were reenacted in that are things that I'm curious about. I know you used to produce Andy's concerts at Carnegie Hall and so forth, yes. and they're they're legendary, so what was it like to be a part of Andy's sort of wild machinations of whatever he, you know, strange things he thought up. I, I relived this, this my whole life with Andy, and it was a blessing to me because Andy was gone, but Jim Carrey became him, and it, I, I relived those four months were just uh, emotional and beautiful, and, and we just laughed. We recreated scenes from Taxi, the Carnegie Hall thing. Jim Carrey was amazing. He, he nailed it. I never saw anything like it. And listen to this. Jim Carrey at the time, already had uh, Ace Ventura Pet Detective out. It was a big hit, but he wanted this so badly that he did a, a, a he did an audition videotape that I saw with Milos Forman and my friend Howard West, who produced the movie with me. And uh, he played the conga drums. He did Andy. He nailed it. He nailed Andy's audition. The SNL from the very beginning of SNL, Mighty Mouse. Here I am to spend the day. That was the whole. Yeah. Right, right. And you know, Andy was on that very first SNL show, the very inaugural show of, uh, he was a special guest, right? Yeah, that's when he did the song Mighty Mouse. He sang that, and that was a a great place for him to be, because they let him do anything he wanted, and uh, and Lorne Michaels was incredible. At the very beginning, when SNL started, you know, and Andy was a hit right off the bat, he said, look, George, he was begging me, he said, please let Andy do more shows. I said, you don't have to beg me to say that. I know it's going to be a hit the younger audience. And uh, Andy did, did many, many of those shows. And it was like he cherished doing those shows. And then, of course, uh, David Letterman was the other show that, that he loved doing. In fact, David Letterman was in Man on the Moon. They recreated a scene with Jerry Lawler, who was the, the one that a- Andy wrestled with at the Mid-South Arena in Memphis, Tennessee. In Memphis, Tennessee. And they, they hated Andy so much. That's part of the wrestling. They, they did their own rehearsals. Jerry Lawler was incredible. And Andy ended up, uh, oh, he made fun of the people down south. Because he did commercials. He said, do you see this? The people down south in Tennessee. He said, this is soap. Look at it. You know what you do with soap? You know, you put water on it and you put it under your arms and you clean yourself. You know, he, <laughs> he did these things to antagonize them. It was just like an incredible 
event at the Mid South Arena, and and then he ended up with a pile driver oh, into the ring. That's just terrifying. Yeah, and, uh, he went to the hospital for three days. He was in traction. It was all fake. He didn't, you know, he faked it out. The brace, he wore a neck brace for like a year that he didn't need. <laughs> he did the Letterman show and Lawler was on it. And uh, Lawler slapped him off the, his chair. Uh, and then Andy started cursing. David Letterman was so great. So David recreated that scene in the movie. And then that was a, another highlight of my career, you know, be, being an, an acting in the movie. And Well, Andy, Andy surely blurred the lines there between reality and comedy, you know, those were sort of pre-Borat days in terms of making fun of that those people right in that auditorium. You mentioned Borat. Michael Richards was unbelievable as Kramer. And then it was a, an interview with Howard Stern and Jerry. Howard asked him this question. Is there anyone else that could have played Kramer? And he said, there's only one person in the world. And he said, Andy Kaufman. Mm. He said he would have pulled it off. By the way, on the book that you created for me, yeah. Now this is true. The chapters. Remember, we discussed the chapters in the book. Okay. Yeah. So these are the chapters. I wrote nothing, and, and inside the book is nothing because I don't really want to. I don't want to write a book, but I just wrote the chapter numbers, and they're all true. Okay. Here are the chapters that happened in my life. Number one: Paul McCartney hugged me. Next chapter: Elvis Presley was the first person in my life to call me sir. We were kids in our twenties. I danced with Madonna at City Field, and Jerry Seinfeld's Mets won the game. Uh, I booked George Carlin on his first speaking role as an actor on That Girl, Marlo Thomas. And then, uh, call me a crazy guy letter. That, that's a letter that I wrote to uh, Brandon Tartikoff, the president of NBC, that Amy typed it up. And I said, call me a crazy guy. But I feel that Jerry Seinfeld. We'll soon be doing a series on NBC. And I thought you'd like to see this article from the current issue of People magazine. But they called Jerry in for a meeting, which led to uh, meeting Larry David a couple of days later. And that led to Seinfeld because Larry and Jerry went for a walk. They went to the supermarkets, made fun of everything, ended up at a coffee shop. And uh, and that this show was born and uh, we brought it to NBC. And then I called my cousin Rob Reiner at Castle Rock. I said, this could be a good production company. Because all the guys are young, contemporary of Jerry. And the next one was, oh, and this, is, this touches my heart. Elizabeth Taylor held my hand. And I was in love with Elizabeth since I, we were both 12. Because I saw her in National Velvet. And she was so beautiful. And she held my hand. And then uh, the other one is Cassius Clay, who became at Muhammad Ali. Cassius Clay needed the cash. That was for the Steve Allen show. said, if you give me cash, I'll do it. That's when he, he did this great poetry on the show, fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee, dancing over the stage. And, and then after the show, this was before the first Sonny Liston fight. And Sonny Liston was like 30 pounds uh, heavier than him, had, a, had a, a foot longer reach. So he was a little worried. And he said to me, seriously, he looked in my eyes and said, George, uh, if I don't win this fight, would you still be able to book me? And I said, no problem. You have you have charisma. I could book you your whole career. Then he knocked out Sonny Liston and he didn't need me. Well, can I tell you, that's enough chapters to cover a couple of hours of conversation. I mean, Paul yeah, McCartney hugging a, you. Uh -oh. Now, Paul McCartney was always one of your great, the songwriters that you really admired as well. So oh, tell I, me I, how and he I, came I, to hug you. Well, uh, 
he won the George Gershwin Prize at the White House. President Obama was there with Michelle. It was, Jerry was invited as the only comedian. All the rest of the people was, were singers, you know, the top, top level singers. And, and it was funny because uh, McCartney sang Michelle Marbell. And, you know, and then they cut to Michelle Obama. And, oh, and then oh, great. We had a, like a little party afterwards, which is amazing because I, I fell in love with the Beatles from the beginning. I mean, I'll have, I can't tell you how many, it's embarrassing how many T-shirts I have. You know, this is an aside. I worked out, it was the Montage Hotel. Uh, now, now it's called the Mayburn Hotel where I have a, a condo. And I worked out in the gym there and I had this great T-shirt with the, with, the, with the Beatles on it. It was a black shirt with like beautiful headshots of each of the Beatles. And I'm, I'm walking there and I see who's working out with Mick Jagger is working out in the club. And, and then he wore, we just walked past each other and he looked, he looked right down at the shirt. And I said, I love, I love the Rolling Stones too. I didn't have the nerve to ask him to take a picture with me with, with Mick Jagger and the Beatles shirt on. That, that would have been great. Oh my God. After the show, uh, we had a little, a little after party and I was there and uh, sitting around a table with Jerry and, uh, and, uh, Paul McCartney. And then I told him when I worked on a Smothers Brothers comedy hour, I was a, an agent with the William Morris Agency. And uh, then they did Hey Jude. This was the first music video in history that was ever shown. They, they sent us and we played it in the dress rehearsal with the whole cast and crew and we're, we're swaying back and forth. And, you know, we just captivated all of our hearts. We telecasted that week uh, to the world. And I said, that was so emotional to me. And he said, wow, he didn't realize I was involved in it. And he gave me a hug. That's how he came to hug me. That is such a great story, George. And the at that time that you were a packaging agent, right? You were putting things together for the Steve Allen show and the Smothers Brothers. That is correct, sir. Okay. So tell me, because most people don't know what that is. What does it mean to be a packaging agent? What was that well, reference to? It was if, if you had a big star and, and you had a good producer, director, you would put the whole package together. And at one point when I started out, there was a commission. This was a controversial thing now, but it was I thought it was great for everybody. The uh, agency would take a commission off the top, so we packaged the Smothers Brothers show. I, I worked for Ben Griefer, who did the Milton Berle show. That was a William Morris package. And he also did Red Buttons, which was an, an incredible, wow. funny show. And then when I came there, we, we did a, you know, Steve Allen and it was, uh, that's where I really learned the producing business was as a packaging agent, you make deals for everybody, the writer, director, choreographer, you know, the, the, the set designer, and then yeah. you'd, sell it, you'd sell the whole package to a network, which is what we did with the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. And, uh, th and that was like a, a gem in my life. And oh, I that, that was such a great moment in time that the Smothers Brothers were really on the cutting edge of social commentary and music and the comics that Bob Einstein, all kinds, Steve Martin, lots of folks wrote on that, right? The three youngest writers on the show were Bob Einstein and, and Rob Reiner, who was 21, and Steve Martin, who was about 21. And they were writers on the show. And then there's this thing, uh, you know, and Steve Martin was also a client of the William Morris Agency. And then he said he wanted to go down to the Horn and do stand-up comedy. So, and he was about 20, 21 years old. We went to the Horn. And he, he also wrote great, great material. So he came down to the horn and we were sitting in the audience, this guy and myself. I'm not saying his name because I don't want to embarrass him. 
However, Steve did about 20 minutes. He got one laugh. The one laugh was walking very strongly into the microphone, hitting him on the nose with the microphone <laughs> exploding. You know, and then we, we met with him after the, after the show. And I just loved him from the beginning. You know. but, and then this other agent at William Morris who looked after him and said, forget about stand-up comedy. Forget about it. Just write. You're a good writer. Stay away from stand-up comedy. You know, and Steve became the icon of all, you know, doing that uh, uh, crazy show he did. He was the oh. crazy guy and everything. And I, I, I've been in, in love with Steve ever since. And, of course, Carl Reiner, my client, directed The Jerk. And I, I was down on the set all the time. And that was another treasure of my life, seeing Steve Martin and Carl Reiner together on, on The they didn't Carl direct him in a few things, uh, the jerk and uh, all of me, the man with two faces or uh, two brains, the man with two brains, right? Yeah, was, and did he do all of me as well? He did all of me, which was terrific. Oh, that was so brilliant! Yeah, that was such a brilliant performance and direction. Yeah. Everything about that was really extraordinary. Yeah, it was uh, uh, so. And it, 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 Steve and the cost remain beautiful friends. I, and I, I understand, and I'm I'm switching veins just for a second because it relates to Carl. And of course, they kept Carl's house, I understand, and that you and Mal Brooks still go over there for dinner on a regular basis. Is that right? Carl died over three months ago. Maybe it's about just about 100 days now. But Mel Brooks has been going to his house every night. I, I go ah. there two or three times a week, and Carl's son, Lucas, and Annie Reiner, you know, my cousin Annie, Carl's uh, daughter. But Mel Brooks has been to that house every night for three and a half months. Every night, you know, because they still they, they figured it's best to sell the house early next year. So Mel still he's going to go there until they they sell the house. And I said, Mel, I could have a clause in the in the sale that you could continue. <laughs> new family moves in. <laughs> you know, two or three nights a week, I'm spending time with Mel Brooks, who, who's my hero from uh, everything he's done. Jerry Seinfeld was just telling me he, he played young Frankenstein for his kids and they would, they, they did not stop laughing for like an hour and a half. And, and it, all of his movies, they just, uh, they treasure it and, uh, and they hold up so magnificently. And Mel, they have a, a, a deal now with ABC, which was postponed because of the, the COVID they, they do a, an original musical of young Frankenstein, young Frankenstein, the musical. And, and that would have been done before a live audience. That's mm -hmm. on hold. He also has uh, the producers in Paris. The play is, is going to be produced in Paris and in French. And that'll be a huge hit. That's on hold. And then he has a history of the world. He has an, a deal to do six episodes, like a miniseries. So he, wow. Mel is 94 years old, waiting for this to end so we could get into all these incredible projects. And he, also, he's writing a book now, which is, oh, can you imagine that? Oh. Everything he's ever done with all of these movies that he started with. And, if you know, Blazing Saddles, that could never have been close to being made today. No, not at oh, all. Oh, my God. It's a pleasure. <laughs> and I saw him at the Microsoft Theater, and his opening act was Blazing Saddles. They played the whole movie. This is a 7,000-seat theater, and Mel sold it out. And, uh, you know, he does actually, it's a conversation. Kevin Salter asks him one question. He bounces on stage and he's there for 25 minutes answering the question, talking about his career from the time he started when he was 15 years old, you know, in the Catskills. And 
it's great. And then he does he does Vegas also. He did Vegas several times at the Wynn Theater. At 94 years old, he's still booked. He's going to go back to Vegas. And that's part of uh, the you know the uh, documentary that Amy produced with me. If you're not in the Obit Eat Breakfast, because Mel was hilarious in it. Norman Lear, the, the three of them with Carl and and Norman and Mel, they used to go away with their wives every weekend and told him they came back with hilarious stories. And Mel did this thing. He saw he talked about when he was 15, 16 years old doing the Catskills. They tell the stories about you know the old Jews and that they love to eat. Then after dinner they go on the porch and they would sing these songs, but they didn't hit the right notes. So he he does this number called "Dancing in the Dark," and the moon plays. I'm dancing in the dark. It goes by, and they're dead. And he, I, mean, I can't tell you how funny it was. And and Norman Lear grabbed his arm. He said, "You just added six years to my life." That talk we talk about laughter and how. Right. Why I cherish it. Well, I'm telling you what, laughter ever after is the secret to all of it, isn't it? To stay youthful. Yeah, and uh, you know, and uh, this is a, a note to to you know managers or agents. When you, when you see a comedian you 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 love and you see him for the first time, it, I, I said it's the closest thing to falling in love because it gives you that elevated feeling, that huge laughter. It's an other dimension that's incredible, the most exciting thing in, in human life. Seeing comedian that you love you know and that's why i compare it to falling in love and that's also you have to if you're a manager you're gonna have to be with that comedian a thousand times and and I, like i am with jerry and i i laugh every time i see him and sit in the audience and i'm just going these riding these waves of laughter well he is such a good comic uh, jerry is such a craftsman i mean i've never seen anybody that works so hard to ratchet down things down to the last little rivet of a bit of comedy. And he doesn't take it for granted. He still writes every day. Like when he was doing those concerts on the road, he's not phoning any of it in, you know, it's, he's really got a routine. He works that, every day, that, and that's your work ethic. You work, you were terrific writing on Seinfeld and, and, and doing this, the, the warm up. Did you love doing the warm up, or you didn't like it so much? I, no, it was fine. I, it was a funny way that I came into that which was, first of all, I was flattered to be selected on the early days when it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles. Um, and we we didn't even have a time slot yet. That was the one that was being done by the late nights and specials folks, right? So there were just a scattered number of four shows. But anyway, on the first day we went to go tape, Larry, David, Jerry Seinfeld, Matt Goldman and myself said, what do we need a warm-up comedian for? We're funny. We didn't know we were naive about it. So, so Larry David said, we're going to draw straws and I drew the short straw and I did that first episode. It was after the pilot, but the very first of the, the group after that. And then the next week I thought, oh, thank God, I don't have to do that. Let's draw straws. And Larry said, why you have seniority. You're the only one with experience from last. And he proceeded to have me do it. And I think even when I wasn't a writer on the show, I came back about maybe you get, you, you were booked as a, the warm-up comedian, right? You, you did a great job because you you spontaneously funny, and you just brought the audience into it. It was it was it was great, and I think you you made a, a several great contributions to the success of that show. And when that you were there for the pilot, I was there for all that early stuff. Even when we came up with the theme song, that was amazing. Going over to Jonathan Wolf's studio and naming the coffee shop monks and all of that stuff was like. 
I, it's irreplaceable the time that I spent with all of you guys. Yeah, Pat, that was shot at Desilu Coinga Studios. It was Renmar, but it used to be Desilu Coinga where they shot, you know, the Danny Thomas show and Merv Griffin and, and the Dick Van Dyke show. And that Carl Reiner came down to give him a, a boost because Carl was a huge fan of Jerry's. And he came down to the pilot and it, and it was the same stage that Carl did 154 episodes of the Dick Van Dyke show. Wow. His arms up and he said, I bless this show. This is going to be a hit. And and then, of course, the the uh, report from NBC, research report, was very bad. It <laughs> said pilot performance week. Who cares about three guys going to a laundromat? We were upset that the storyline interrupted Jerry's stand-up. Pilot performance week. So I got a call from the president of NBC, Brandon Tartikoff, saying that the, the comedy department passed on it. It's not on the schedule. And then, wow. then we talked to Rick Ludwin, who's the head of Variety, and he was handled The Tonight Show and Letterman Show and all their Variety shows. So he had two one-hour Variety specials that he didn't commit to. He had it budgeted. And he, Rick Ludwin, God rest his soul, we, he just left us, but he was the hero that made Seinfeld possible because he ordered four 30-minute specials. And since Jerry, the love of comedy, Jerry did stand-up in the beginning, middle, and end of the show. So it was, it was like a hybrid, like a variety show. So he was able to order four episodes. And that led to, uh, you know, 180 episodes and the number one show in the world. Now it's going on Netflix in October, which is going to be awesome. an explosion. And you would add, as a 2,000-year-old man would say, you would add, Charlie. <laughs> you would add. I was. Can I tell you, George, one of the funniest things about doing warm-up for that show is that I always tried to say to the audience, no questions are dumb. If you want to know how TV works or what's going on, you know, ask any questions. I'll get the answers. I'll I'll talk to the boom mic operator, find out how much he gets paid. Oh, whatever you want to know, right? And and I always tried to be very gracious about it. After several episodes, people ask the dumbest questions. Um, and and they would say, is this a repeat? And I'm like, we're shooting the stupid show right now. Like, I know it seems familiar because the, and I was sort of, get like scruffled up about it, you know, um, because I go, if you think it's a repeat, how does it end? But there were so many hilarious moments with the writers and so forth. Like the, the episode where they came up with a woman's name that matched the body part, which was Mulva. But I remember they tried all kinds of names, uh, yeah. Regina, like all kinds of names leading up to that. And it was only on the final take and they went backstage and somebody came out and they said that, and we all lost it. We were like, "That's it," you know. Oh yeah, that was incredible. I'm so glad you were down there, but you know, the, the, those moments are so cherished in the world of comedy and entertainment, and that it's, uh, I feel well, lucky. Another thing that I cherished that you were big supporter of is when we played the big prank on Jerry. He had a long-standing Halloween routine, and yeah. it's one of his great stand-up bits. And it had been converted into a children's book called Halloween, which was really just his stand-up that was illustrated. And I remember you calling me and asking, is there a movie in this book? Is there something we could do to create a movie out of it? And ultimately, you and I made a fake movie trailer. Yes, you did hard work. Well, I know, but it, but you helped support me financially to make that. And, and you kind of gave me permission to run with the Seinfeld brand. Yeah. And we, behind Jerry's back, I took the audio track from the reading of the children's book, which didn't have an audience laughing on it, 
and we made him the narrator of the trailer and we called it free candy because I thought free candy was the funniest thing you could put on, on a marquee that if kids passed it, they would tell their parents, wait a minute, stop. There's free candy over there. Right. Um, and Jerry seemed to like that idea, but that's all he knew about. And what I'd like you to tell is when we finished it and I showed up at one of his concerts in Vegas, I didn't come to the concert, but I went to a movie theater nearby and we put it in a screening package before a movie he was going to see. And you were there along with Kevin and his opening act and all those folks. Yeah, right, Amy? Amy, you were there as well. Yeah. And, and we had kind of pulled a, you know, a fast one on Jerry, which you, when you said, let's show this to Jerry, I said, oh, we, we can't show it to him unless we show it in a movie theater, in a trailer package before he sees a movie. So tell me how that night, uh, how that. Jerry's jaw dropped. He could not believe it because they show about six or seven trailers. And this one was right in the middle his, <laughs> promoting his movie. I had such a passion for him to do this movie. In fact, it ties in. I said, you know, Jerry always said, write the book, write the book. You know, you have a, an incredible book in you. So I said, seriously, I, I wait till after I croak because it'll sell more copies. Anyway, and I, don't, and I don't have to do it. I can have more fun with comedy. But Jerry could not believe that this trailer was there perfectly executed by Pat Hazel. Pat, we, I, we produced, directed, put the whole thing together. And that, that was one of the, the greatest fun times that we've had on the road, you know, explosive laughter and applause. And Pat could do things like that. Pat is a genius. Don't tell him. George, it's almost like you're the Forrest Gump of comedy. (laughs) I love that. You were at every event. All those centuries of comedy. When you asked me to make this fake movie trailer about Halloween for Jerry, I went to a diner and met with him in New York. And he said to me, I will make this movie if you can get George to write the book of all the stories. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, like I've now got to broker a deal with George to write a book. But instead, that's when I made the fake book cover. And on it, I put uh, New York Times bestselling book cover because I, I, I knew there wasn't going to be a book. But it was great. Uh-oh. Amy Hyatt was my co-conspirator to get some pictures of you and some quotes and I asked for some information. She mentioned, you know, I've had lunch with you at the grill in Beverly Hills. That is to me, the place that I see you having lunch every day of your life. You know, you come back and have lunch with me there. I so will do that. Tell me about the special, that booth. Tell me about the George Shapiro booth at the grill. Oh, it's just a booth where I, I've, I've been with a lot of beautiful people, you know, but, uh, I'm too modest to talk about that. All right. Well, can you tell me what you or did you have the same meal every day or did you have a different meal? I have, I have, uh, I, they have a wonderful uh, salmon there. Chicken pot pie. I took Ron Meyer there. You know, he was the head of Universal for years. He had the biggest, he's the cutest little guy and he had this huge chicken pot pie. <laughs> we, you know, we, I was there with Tony Vince Aquera, who's the CEO of Sony. And, and and Steve Moscow and Gary Shandling, oh, a lot of people. And, of course, Jerry, we celebrated the sale of Seinfeld right there at the grill and one of the greatest celebrations ever when when we got picked, when the series got picked up. And we also, I, you know, I don't know if you know, and, and Regis Philbin, I, I had a lot of lunches there with Regis Philbin, and, boy, and that just triggers all 
these people that just left us, like Regis with his high energy. Also, another thing, I don't know if you were down there, Jerry Stiller, who I love with mm. all my heart. Uh, you know, he's gone, but, but I, I, he's so alive, so close to him. We really loved each other. And he, he did one scene, which I mentioned, I sent a, a tweet out after he died, that it was one of the greatest nights of my life when he was breaking up with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. There was a scene. <laughs> Julia kept laughing. And that was the thing when, when he was saying, you want a piece of me? <laughs> right. Then one of the greatest fun nights, because it was nonstop laughter. Yeah, and Jerry Stiller was so, so good at saying lines differently every time. Like, he never repeated it. <laughs> That's right. He would push a different, he would say, you're going to get out of here, right, or whatever. And it would be different the next time. You're going to get out. And it, so nobody ever knew. Everybody was off balance. I know. And he would say his lines. What a treasure he was. Everyone loved him and appreciated him. He was a, a great, great Frank Costanza. Well, let's let's talk about a few other places in in the timeline. You mentioned Elvis calling you sir. I, I may have this wrong, but I think you were a, a junior agent at William Morris. At William Morris, and he was doing the Ed Sullivan show. And you know, he, he as soon as I met him, he was one of the warmest, nicest people. You know, we're about the same age, and uh, we were in the early twenties. Well, he was doing the show, and there was a little press conference before the show. So I said, Elvis, they're ready for you now. The press is ready for you before you go on the show. He said, yes, sir. I'll be right there, sir. <laughs> I said, look, you know, you're from Mississippi. And you say, sir and ma'am, I'm from the Bronx. So you are the first person in my life to call me sir. So I said, three times, he said, yes, sir. I'll be right there, sir. <laughs> three sirs. I, I, I never even got close to anyone calling me sir. Had you just been assigned to escort him over to Ed Sullivan's show, or I, I, I was over there to just sort of assist uh, uh, Harry Kalshein, who was also Carl Reiner's agent. He 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 was the agent, you know, for uh, for Elvis, and also you know Colonel Parker. You're familiar with? Him? Oh yeah, I love. I first of all, I know you're a big time manager. If your phone's ringing during a podcast, that means you're very important. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm not in charge of phones. I, uh, I, I know. I can't I, wait. To, I want to hear this deal be made. I, I, only, I only use my cell phone. But Colonel Parker, when I was uh, at, at William Morris, you know, I started in the mailroom. Uh, my salary, I'm not uh, proud of the deal I made. It was $38 a week. And I always say that's my weakest negotiation in my life. $38 a week to work in the mailroom. And then when you were in the mailroom, you would uh, deliver mail to all the ages and and, and in those days, they printed out these things on Xerox. And so you learned all, all how the deals were constructed. It was a, it was a learning process, like, a, like an incredible college, you know, being in the mailroom. And, and then you're in a messenger boy, you know, run, running around delivering things. And also, after we had to go to secretarial school. Bernie Brillstein was my mentor there. And uh, he became a big producer and a manager. And all the he handled all the people on SNL like Belushi and Aykroyd and Gilda Radner and and Juan Michaels, all, all of them. Uh, he he wrote an incredible memoir, and I know that that was one of the things that intimidated you about writing a book. Yeah, he you said, know why? Because it was one of the best books I ever read, and it didn't do any business. So that's why I'm not going to write the book. I'll wait till after I croak. I'll have a big hit. <laughs> Anna Pakonin, uh, she she's a writer. She wrote scripts for Heart to Heart. You know, she takes care of everything. I'm, in my life right now, so I, I haven't. I kept journals over the years since I started, and I, I gave her all the journals. And 
So, so she, she'll, she'll write the book and there, there'll be some laughs in it with uh, Bernie Brillstein was, he blazed the trail for me because he worked at the William Morris Agency. I used to deliver mail to him. My first day, I delivered mail and he had these pictures of Sophia Lauren and Kirk Douglas, Burt Lancaster, Ann Bancroft, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra. I said, and we came back that Bernie Brillstein has to be the biggest agent in the world. But I said, no, he's just in publicity, just got out of the mailroom two months ago. So that's that's how naive I was. I thought he was the agent for all of these guys. So. Is, that, is that also where you originally met your partner, Howard West, or did you know Howard before those days? I met Howard West when we were eight years old at, at PS80 in the Bronx. You know, I started with a lot of friends when we were five in kindergarten. Howard was the new kid that moved to the neighborhood at the age of eight. We were in the third grade. I saw Howard just sitting on, on, on the steps, you know, with the, near the doorway to the, the PS80. And he was all alone, and I didn't recognize him, because you recognize everyone from your school. I said, are you, are you new here in school? He said, yeah, we just moved to the neighborhood. So then I said, well, we play uh, stickball and football and basketball. If you, you want to join us? He said, yeah, that would be great. And we, be, we became friends uh, from that moment on, from the time we were eight years old. And our first partnership was shipping in for comic books. Was all, ah. all the comic books were 10 cents. So we'd, eat, we'd save money. We'd each chip in a, a nickel. And then we could read the books. And one of the things they would, you know, had Batman and all, the, the adventure comics. They had the, the uh, introduction of Superman. One of the copies just sold for 3200000 But I didn't keep it. I didn't keep it, Amy. I don't know if you noticed the pattern, though, George. Think about that comic book being Superman and Jerry's favorite character being Superman. Oh, yeah. All those years later, right? And how you and uh, Howard were so instrumental in launching not just his comedy career, but the television career and even things like the American Express commercials with Superman. Oh, Patrick Warburton played animated Superman. And that, those were so entertaining. Oh, my God. They, they were absolutely great. They, they were, there was one scene that's memorable. Uh, Super, Superman and Jerry was in a diner. They were talking. And then this guy comes in and he's, he's raving, Superman, Superman, you saved my life. I was hanging from a trestle. You're the greatest thing in the history of the world and the universe. Thank you for saving me. There's no one like you. Then he looks at Jerry and says, you are good too. There <laughs> uh. <laughs> you go. You know what you might be able to share with me, which I, as an insider view that nobody would know, is in your last trip to New York before the pandemic hit, um, Jerry was doing his special 23 Hours to Kill. That was his, his most recent uh, Netflix special. And in that, there was a wraparound on that special, which was kind of a James Bondish thing where there he jumped out of a helicopter into the to the river. Tell me about that stunt. And were you, were you there when he did I that? I was there, Charlie. I, I, I was there uh, with George Wallace and I were on the camera boat, you know, following him around. And the, the helicopter was flying around. Jerry, at the time, he was 65 years old. You know, now he's 66. But he he leaped out of the helicopter. like so He had a James Bond theme that, that he had this idea. The camera was on him. We were watching. He jumped out. They took a great picture of him because, you know, there was no stuntman involved. Because you could see him falling down the whole way. It was shot beautifully. It was out of 
we were both out of our minds when he, when he did that. And then he was so clever. When he entered the stage, looked like he came right from the helicopter with his wetsuit on, spit out the water in his mouth, went on stage right. and did a, an absolute killer one-hour show. And then I was there. We did a great promo for it with, when he played James Bond. And they had that blowtorch going between his legs. It was from a, a Sean Connery, James Bond movie. And, and they, they had a, this guy there. The evil guy was Blowfish, his name was. And he was the guy, that, the heavy, that, that had Jerry all tied up. And I was telling Amy that March 6th, the next day, COVID took over. And Jerry canceled. He had this incredible sold out, four shows sold out at the Beacon Theater from March 13th and 14th. And on March 11th, Jerry said he didn't want to pe- keep put his audience in jeopardy. And then on the 12th, Bill de Blasio called off Broadway. Jerry's truly my hero. He wanted to protect his audience. I think that was really bright leadership on Jerry's part. And yet he's so versatile when he can't perform for his audience live like that. He's now put this book out, Is This Anything? Yeah. Which is a great retrospective of all the bits I remember. Over five decades. And also his introduction, the lead in, reveals everything about his feelings, about his family, about comedy, his dedication. It's incredible insight into stand-up comedy. And also that he's always, you know, taking these risks. By the way, 23 Hours to Kill, at the end credits, they showed him practicing. It showed the authenticity of the stunt. And they showed him leaping off this 40-foot tower in the swimming pool. And they, Tammy Johnston, his, his, his producer, put that together. That was her idea. She's like an incredible producer. And she did the, the first one, Jerry Before Seinfeld, which was a, the first special that he did specifically for Netflix. And that, that was a gem because it talked all about his life because his parents didn't know he was funny. And he said, I, I came out when I was on stage. <laughs> he said, I said, Mom, Dad, I, I didn't know. I never really told you this before, but, but I'm funny. <laughs> and it was all about his very first jokes, you know, at the comic strip on Second Avenue. and. Uh, that piece at the end was such a gem for me, showing Jerry working hard, jumping off these 40-foot platforms. In fact, when I saw the video, I got scared because he was underwater for so long. I said, come up, Jerry, get up, get out of the water. <laughs> yeah, it's like working with Houdini or something. Oh, it was amazing. You know, I, I was taken by that because when I watched the open of that special, I saw his face dropping out of that helicopter and I went, Mo, he must've made this jump. Boy, that seems pretty daring at 65. Yeah. And then at the end, when I saw it played out, I was like, Oh man, he, he had to do this more than once. He had to prepare for it. That's a major commitment. Oh, yeah. But Jerry also, he's got a brain. Uh, his promos are always great. He's kind of got an advertising brain. He knows how to, to make things sharp and funny and on time and all of that. Like, uh, when he started making all those car commercials originally for comedians in cars getting coffee, he was making those uh, commercials for the cars, wasn't yeah. he? He said that if he didn't go into comedy, he probably would have been a, uh, working in advertising, you know, creating commercials and so forth. But it's all about writing because he write, he's written every day since he's 20 years old. Every day he writes stand-up material and he's doing it right now where he is out in Long Island. Yeah. Well, he was an inspiration to me as you and Howard, your partner, you guys gave me the the reminder that you have to write. Howard really boxed me into a corner once and he said, 
He said, if you're going to make it in this business, you have to write. And I heard that from a few people, but I remember him very specifically stopping me in the hallway and he thought I was funny and he thought I was a good stand-up, but he said, you're going to have to start creating the content, all the content. He was so appreciative of that comedy talent like I am. Well, you two were interesting pair because you were not opposites, but you did do different things. Like he was definitely, he was sort of a guy that looked at the numbers and he looked at spreadsheets and he was, you know, a math guy. Like he was really into negotiation and you were definitely the uh, supporter front man. Anytime we would go to Jerry's famous deli for a meal or something, there was George at the round table. Well, right. But well, I don't. Yeah. But Howard was like the most brilliant negotiator I've ever seen in my life. And I needed a negotiator because I, I was more with the creative end and the comedy end and working with people that were way too bizarre for Howard, like Andy Kaufman. <laughs> he could, he, he shook his head. When I first brought in Andy Kaufman, but he ended up making incredible deals for like Man on the Moon. But he was a he was like the most creative, brilliant negotiator I've ever come across. When I left William Morris to show you how off negotiating I am, I, I decided to leave William Morris, go into follow Bernie Brillstein's path of being a personal manager and a producer. So I left in August because I just once I made up my mind, I bolted. So Howard. And I asked Howard to join me, and he was thinking about it because he, he had a, a wife and a kid and, you know, with the security of the William Morris Agency. And then he decided to come with me. I offered him the president of the company because I didn't care. <laughs> and the parking place closest to the entrance. He finally said he would do it. And then it was like magic. And the first deal we made was for the 2,000-year-old man. We sold the special to CBS. Uh, and that was one of the gems of my first life, my first deal as, as a, you know, going into management and production. He also worked with Marty Feldman. He was amazing. It was just a blessing for me to have Howard. And also we were partners, as I said, since we're eight years old, we bought our first car together called the Cream Puff. When we saw the ad in the Daily News, it was called the Cream Puff. You know, it cost us thousands of dollars in repairs. <laughs> and we shared that car for years. And, and we we were partners in uh, as lifeguards at Tamament and the Pocono Mountains where we met Neil Simon and his brother Danny Simon were the head writers. Herb Ross was the choreographer. We had people up there like Harold Burnett and Dick Sean was the, the head comic. That's where I really got in uh, uh, deeply into falling in love with show business because I saw these constructions that writers, producers, directors, composers every week they put together a new review they'd work on it through the week and it would be saturday night then they repeated on sunday when the new uh, guests would come out and and, and danny simon and neil, neil simon who's called doc simon at the time you and he always asked us what's going on at the waterfront we told him the stories about the girls and he would write it into sketches and then on the weekends these people came up they were called agents you know, from William Morris and MCA at the time and General Waters. And they came up and they had dinner with their clients, beautiful girls, singers. I said, this is your job? We worked backstage, you know, as, as stagehands or ushers. But that was my whole introduction. So I said, I have to go to the Army to, to, to keep you free. But then when I come out, I'm going to look into this job as an agent. So I started, at the, as I said, in the mailroom for $38 a week. And that was the best move I ever made because my brother, Don Pancho Shapiro, he was an incredible salesman. And, 
and he went to work in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and he offered me a job for $200 a week as a draw against commission compared to the $38 a week. So that was very nice of Don Pancho Shapiro. That's his nickname because he looks very Spanish, even though he's Jewish. I had the pleasure. I had the pleasure to meet him when I came to LA for that really? um, screening of your documentary, and he gave me his card, and it made me smile so much. Oh, but what happened was I went to see Death of a Salesman. You know about a guy on the road with his bags and everything else, and I, I had that. So I had that that feeling of uh, horror of, of the life of a salesman on the road, and then then. I, I had this nightmare with, with me being in Texas and New Mexico with my with my little bags and saying, hello, I have samples. Do you want to see the sample? I said, no. They slammed the door in my face. And then I, I, I'd be walking with my suitcases on a dirt road, going to a dusty old motel. But it's funny because what you did do, instead of the samples, you were taking comics and you were selling them as your samples into nightclubs, into television. You really are an extraordinary supporter. You have a great eye at identifying talent. You talked about your ability to hang with somebody as quirky as Andy Kaufman, who brings up this question. You also represented Tony Clifton. Well, Jimmy the C who's a guy that worked in our office, Jimmy Canchola. So I said, I don't want to manage uh, Tony Clifton. I helped Tony get, get booked because I got a couple of calls from Harris and the uh, lounge room. I booked Tony Clifton for two weeks and Andy Kaufman came in in disguise to watch him. And Andy was amazing as Tony Clifton, by the way. When he got taxi, Andy was booked in the main room at the comedy store. And Ed Weinberger and Jim Brooks were looking to cast the role of Latka on Taxi. So they came down and it was just set, happened to be that Tony Clifton was his opening act. And at that point, he put on all a lot of makeup. You could not recognize Andy Cabin. You know, he had the makeup and the hair and, and the sideburns and the fat suit. You know, and Tony Clifton did like 20 minutes of stuff insulting the audience, strutting around the stage. And then Andy Kaufman came on. He did an hour that he killed the audience, you know, with the conga drums. Every, everything he did was incredible. Ed Weinberg and Jim Brooks said, we want to book him as Latka. So Andy said, I, you know, I don't really want to do a sitcom because I love creating material like you, Pat, doing, doing stand-up and, you know, playing the goal being maybe someday doing Carnegie Hall. But well, that's what I want to do. So I said, well, these guys are great that, you know, they did the Mary Tyler Moore show. You could make enough money to put a, a, a great show together with props and, and uh, all kinds of great production elements. So he said, oh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll do it only if they would book Tony Clifton before the episode. They offered Andy 22 episodes. Andy said, I'll, I could do 14 episodes and Tony four, and otherwise I won't do it. And I went to Ed Weinberg and Jim Brooks, and they wanted Andy so much to play Latka that they said, okay, it's a deal. So I have two contracts, one for four shows with Tony Clifton. But knowing Tony, I, I put a clause in a contract saying, that if Tony gets fired, Andy Calvin has the right, the option to leave the show. It was with Paramount and ABC. So the first show, when Tony Clifton comes down, he gets a, a, a Winnebago bigger than Judd Hirsch's. And <laughs> Andy doesn't drink. But Tony had Jack Daniels, a bottle of Jack Daniels, two very lovely looking hookers, a brunette and a blonde. <laughs> and and he, he came to the first reading and he put each hooker on, on each knee. He reads the script. He said, bullshit, 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 my line. Bullshit, 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 my line. <laughs> so, and, and after three days, I got a call from Ed Weinberger saying, 
it's not working out, you know, with Tony Clifton. You know, he's not that good an actor and he comes late and he's drinking. I said, we'd like to let him go. So I said, well, I know you have this clause in a contract with Andy. Let me let me check Andy. So I checked Andy. He's, and Andy, I guess he didn't want to bother with the makeup anymore. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll let them fire Tony Clifton. I'll stay with the show. <laughs> they do it at the run-through. When all the people from Paramount there, the theater was absolutely full. And so he got it. He quit. That was in the movie Man on the Moon. They recreated that beautifully. He got thrown off. They tossed him off, three security guards, and they got a picture of him. It's still get it in the uh, Los Angeles Times calendar section on the front page. When I met him later with the makeup off, he said, George, this is the greatest day of my life. This is theater of the street. This is what I live for. That's how quirky he was. That's why Howard didn't quite understand him, and I sort of embraced that that craziness. But Howard- Well, I, you know what? He's got so many stories. You know, like when he took the audience after Carnegie Hall out for milk and cookies, there were like 35 buses waiting for them after the show to take exactly. the whole audience. How did you know the number of buses? And you know that Robin Williams played his grandmother? He was, Robin Williams was in the audience, made up as an old as a grandmother, old, 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 old person's makeup and everything. And he was sitting there. And Andy said, my grandma is here, Grandma Lily. She came up from Florida. <laughs> And Grandma Lily, I want you to have a good seat. I brought your easy chair from Florida, and you could sit and watch the show. So nobody knew it was, of course, Robin Williams. Mrs. Doubtfire was two years in, in, in the future. So now like, you've recommended the makeup person who, who was booked on the show that did his makeup for Mrs. Doubtfire. So Robin Williams sat on the side of the stage, on stage, like an old lady, dozing off like an old lady would do. <laughs> He just did that the whole show. And Andy had the, he had the Rockettes, Mormon Tabernacle Choir. He had Santa Claus coming down from the ceiling. It was like an amazing production. And then at the end of the production, he said, I'd like to, to my grandmother was played by Robin Williams. And then Robin takes the wig off. The audience goes berserk. Because Robin was amazing. Robin loved Andy, and Andy loved Robin. And then Robin also gave out cookies and milk with, with me and Andy's mother and father at the New York School of Printing. You know, they set up a whole stage there with the, with the cookies, and, and, it, and it went on the next day in the Staten Island Ferry. He continued the show. That's uh, so funny. I mean, you know, he was avant-garde. Followed his own drama, and no one, no one like him. Well, no, there's no one like you either, George, and I can tell you, first I want to pay you and your producing partner there, Amy Hyatt, because a, a number of years ago, there was an award given to you. I believe you're the only one that's ever received the Bliss Award. Yes. And that was an amazing night in Beverly Hills. And Amy put on a fundraising tribute, the Bliss Awards, which you guys did for David Lynch's TM Foundation. And I know that TM is something that you exercise in your, you know, your regular routine. Uh, yes, I've been, I've been doing it, you know, since 1984. And Jim Carrey started TM when he did uh, Man on the Moon in 1999, and he's still doing it. Uh, and uh, Jerry Seinfeld did it since he's 18 years old. But it's a wonderful thing, and they help the kids with challenges in, in rough neighborhoods and returning veterans. It's an amazing organization, the David Lynch Foundation. That was a fundraiser for that, but it was a night of comedy that was like no other. The guests included that performed were Jay Leno and Gary Shandling and Sarah Silverman. There were so many. Russell Brand hosted the night. 
but you guys put on such a beautiful event. You really have uh, lived quite a life. And I have to say that you have been generous in sharing so many opportunities. And you have enhanced my life, Pat Hazel. Believe me, you have enhanced my life on many levels. And I appreciate you because you have a brilliant mind, a brilliant comedy mind, a beautiful heart and a beautiful soul. So God bless you. And keep doing what you're doing. I I tell you what, there's not a greater endorsement in the world. Uh, It means the world to me that you that you say that. But I will say, I was a young upstart from Omaha when I got to LA. I think I might have met you when Jerry was doing his first stand-up special, Stand Up Confidential. Yeah, I was the opening act at the Roxy in Hollywood, and at that time, I was juggling hats and you know had all kinds of crazy tricks and props. And some years later, when we were touring. Jerry said to me, just bring a garment bag. He said, you can do stand up. You're not going to lose your job. Just try to do it without all the props and stuff. I thought he was being avuncular and complimentary. What he didn't want to do was wait for my props at the airport. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, but he, but he was really, really supportive as you were and Howard was and Amy is. There were so many other opportunities, not just writing on the show, but when we did do the bliss awards, Amy called me in as a secret weapon to direct the live event. I was so moved by the invitation because I was living outside of LA and I just really felt accepted by, by you and your partner. And it was really uh, a seminal time in my life for as big in show business as you all were, you always treated me like a family member and I'm grateful for that. But could you handle one more compliment? Uh, Let me sit. Okay, go ahead. Well, Because Norman Lear and Carl Reiner attended, and they both said the same thing. They said, this is the greatest event of this kind they've ever been to. And these are people that have been around for a long time. And that's how captivated they were by your work and Amy's work. Well, I knew. So you really really came through, and you gave me one of the greatest fun nights of my life. It was such a great tribute to me that my kids don't have to put anything together for the funeral. I said that that night. I said, this is incredible. My lucky kids, all they have to do is show this. They're done with the whole funeral. They don't have to worry about it. Oh, there were so many great video elements, so many great tributes. And the the audience was uh, everybody who's who just sitting at those tables. And I was just looking out going, man, I'm really at something. And yes, it did feel a little bit like a memorial. Oh, yeah. It was uh, so funny. It gave me that great line to say that. And Kevin Nealon was incredible, by the way on the film segment part and, and then being there in person. I'm a huge fan of his. And I know you have a beautiful connection with him. Yes, and he he did this show and we talked about a lot of things, but he has a great affection for you as well. But you really, really made a difference in a lot of comedians' lives, just being there and supporting them, right? I just followed my calling, really. So it was, to me, it was the, it's, it's the greatest ride ever, being involved with comedians and laughter every single day of my life. I couldn't be, I couldn't feel luckier. Well, let me sign off in this way that if anybody follows their calling as well as you followed yours, they will find themselves holding hands with Elizabeth Taylor being called sir by Elvis uh, (laughs) serving cookies with Andy Kaufman. I mean, you really are uh, a person that everybody should know just as a, a person, you're really an extraordinary guy. And I appreciate your investment in today's uh, conversation. I love it, and I love you, and I love Amy, and it was just a joy to be with you. All right. Well, I, lo- I love you too, George. Yeah, <laughs> it was okay. <laughs> we did good. Bonsoir. Thanks for listening. 
Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is a production of Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under WizBank producer Amanda Rosenberg, with editing by the surgeon of sound, Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and technical wizardry from Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, on Facebook, or visiting our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot .fun, because dot .com is not fun. Cheers. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghost stage.